Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and also in Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews 4, a few other places as well. But Luke chapter 1 is where we'll begin and then put a little marker in your Bible to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Well, let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, thank you for your great love for sinners like us, that you sent your Son and made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us sinners so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we could stand in your presence. So we thank you for Jesus this morning and for your spirit who confirms in our hearts that we cry out, Abba, Father, that we are your children adopted into your family. Thank you for Jesus, our merciful high priest, that we have someone who has gone before us and experienced everything that we've experienced. And for those of us here today, Father, who are tempted to sin, may we remember that your son was tempted too, but he never gave in. May we remember if we're tempted to despair and to give up and to have no hope, whatever is going on in our life, that your son has been there. He's lost friends. He's been betrayed. There's been sadness, agony, pain. May we remember and have hope that he's been there too. And therefore, what a merciful high priest he is. Turn our eyes to him once again this morning as we look at your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw last week that God entered into our mess in the incarnation, that Jesus entered into our mess here. He was born into a sinful family, even though Jesus was not a sinner. His family tree was littered with liars and prostitutes, adulterers, idolaters, murderers, rapists, craziest family Ever. But we also saw last week that Jesus doesn't come to us all covered up with protective gear like a doctor working on an Ebola patient. We saw that Jesus doesn't come to us covered up in a hazmat suit. He doesn't keep us at arm's length. He brings us in. We saw last week that Jesus looks at the darkest, most hideous, most secret places of our hearts And he still loves us. He doesn't run from us. Jesus sees all the secret things that you hide. Those thoughts, those words, those desires. And he still loves you. And he proved his love for you by becoming a human being, by living for you and by dying for you. By living the life that you could never live, a life of perfection, by living the life you could never live because you are a sinner and by dying the death that you deserve and that I deserve because we are sinners. But how does Jesus do this? How does he become a human being? How does he enter into this messy world without becoming sinful like it? How does he not catch the Ebola virus of sin 
from us as he enters our world? How does he become a human being and not be sinful? Because all we know experientially in our lives is that human beings are sinful. So how in the world does Jesus Christ become a human being and not sin? That's what we'll look at today. How Jesus became the God-man, how the Word became flesh. So you'll hear some things and ideas that you've heard from me before, but I think we need to revisit them because what better time of the year to look at the incarnation than the season of Advent and Christian? We need to revisit the incarnation and what it means that the Word became flesh because too many Christians have a faulty view of the incarnation. Too many Christians live in error and have an incorrect Christology. So I want to help clear that up for any of you today. So today we will look at what it means that the word became flesh, as John 1.14 says. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the implications for us and our bodies. What does it mean for our bodies that Jesus Christ became a human being like us? Because if you're like me, most of us don't like our bodies, do we? So you live with your body every day, so we might as well talk about it next week. What are the implications of the incarnation of Jesus Christ for us and our bodies that we typically don't like? You know, you look in the mirror and you're like, "Uh, do a little work here, here. All right, that's a whole nother sermon for next week. By the looks of your faces, you all love your bodies. When you get older, it Kind of, kind of starts growing in the middle here, at least for me. So I need to hear that next week. So what we'll discover today is that God redeems this world. He redeems us by taking on human flesh and becoming just like us. Sin being the only exception. So that leads us to our big idea today, which is this. If Jesus is not the same as you, then Jesus cannot save you. If Jesus Christ is not the same as you, then he cannot save you. If Jesus did not become a human being, then none of us could ever be saved. This is what the Old Testament saints were looking forward to, the Messiah coming. If Jesus did not take on every aspect of humanity, sin being the only exception, then God could not redeem this world because that's exactly how God redeems this broken world. He redeems this broken world by becoming just like us, sin being the only exception. Now let's read about that now from Luke's gospel. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, 
How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the first thing that we must understand about the incarnation of Jesus is that this was the weirdest birth ever. It was the weirdest birth ever because the eternal son of God who has always existed into eternity past, who never had a beginning, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity was born into this world, into time and space. God became man, God took on human flesh and that is weird. Humanity had never seen anything like this before And we've never seen anything like this since. God took on human flesh. So Gabriel tells this unwed, pimple-faced teenager that she is going to get pregnant, not by Joseph, the man that she is betrothed to, but that God will cause her to become pregnant with his eternal son. How controversial, trying to explain this to people. How weird, A young, unmarried teenage girl with pimples, and at that awkward time of her life, who is betrothed to a man to be married to him, she is about to become pregnant with the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Our God is indeed mysterious, isn't he, Grace? So how does Mary respond? It's as if Mary says, let me get this straight. I am going to get pregnant, even though I'm not married, even though I've never been with a man, and the baby to be born to me will be the Messiah. I believe you, but I just want to know how this will be since I am a virgin. And then Gabriel explains the mysterious and almost unbelievable process to her. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and the power of, the, of God will overshadow you. Now notice there's no details here on how it will happen. Gabriel gives no extra information. He doesn't give Mary a handbook to try to explain it all. He just says, this is how it's gonna happen. God will do it. God will make you pregnant. And so there's a lesson for us here to learn, Grace. God is not necessarily interested in answering all of our questions. God isn't interested in satisfying all of our curiosities. The Bible is not interested in answering all of your questions. God is more interested in your worship. He's not so much interested in satisfying your curiosities as you being satisfied in his son. God is more interested in our worship. It is more important for us to adore him and worship him than have all the information that we want on our situations and the things happening in our lives. We want information. Why is this happening, God? Tell me what's going on in my life. We want that. We want to be satisfied. We're curious. God, what are you doing in my family? What is happening? And God says, I'm not so much interested in satisfying your curiosities, answering all of your questions, so much so as I am that you would be satisfied in my son. It's more important to worship and to be satisfied with all that God is for us in his son Jesus than to have all of our curiosities satisfied. So don't go looking for all the answers. Look for God. 
Look for Jesus because Jesus is enough to get you through whatever you're going through. And so we have this weird birth that Gabriel says will take place. The Messiah would enter the world surrounded by much controversy. A virgin, unwed teenage girl with pimples in a small podunk town in Galilee would become pregnant with the eternal Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Weirdest birth ever. And isn't it great that the Lord is so unpredictable like this? He goes against human wisdom. He's not politically correct at all. He does some pretty strange things. God does some pretty weird things, doesn't he? So Mary, who was a virgin, became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. But Mary was still a sinner. She was just as messed up as we are, but God sovereignly chose her to be the mother of his son. So she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we accept that by faith because God's word says that we accept that by faith because we are a people of faith. And if you try and figure all of that out, all the details, it will make you crazy or it may make you a heretic. But even though we may not understand every detail about the incarnation and the birth of the Messiah, we need to study the incarnation and to think deeply about it, even though we may not understand it all. Now, why? Even though we can't understand it all, even though we have questions, even though we're curious, even though it may make our brains hurt to think about, we must think deeply about Jesus becoming the God-man. Now, why? Here's why. Because Christians sometimes don't think rightly about Jesus Christ. And that's why the creeds and the councils throughout church history happened. Because people were not thinking and believing according to scripture. And that's why there are heretics like Nestorius and Apollinarius and Eutyches. Each of these men and their followers had faulty views of the incarnation. I don't know if you remember them from our series several years ago, but they were in error in the way in which they tried to understand the God-man Jesus. And if you've forgotten these men, Nestorius, Apollinarius, and Eutyches, you forgot them and what they believed about Jesus, they'll make an appearance in our email devotionals next week in the Vine. So if you don't get our daily email that goes out, email the office and ask to be put on the Vine. Next week, Nestorius, Apollinarius, and Eutyches will show up again. These men are proof that Christians sometimes have a wrong idea about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Sometimes Christians don't think rightly about Jesus Christ, and it ends up on our coffee mugs and our T-shirts and in our Christian bookstores and on social media like Facebook and Twitter. And that's why I have labored over the years to remind you that Jesus Christ was a human being. You have heard me repeatedly say, and some of you are sick of it, that Jesus was made up of flesh and blood and bone and tissue, and that he had armpits and kneecaps, and shins, and big toes, and earlobes, and teeth, and a tongue, and that his breath would smell when he woke up in the morning, and that he needed coffee when he woke up in the morning, and that he had to use the restroom 
and that he got hungry and that he threw up and he cried and he wasn't exempt from stubbing his toe or sleeping crooked and waking up with a crick in his neck. I have labored over the years to tell you over and over again that Jesus Christ was very much a human being. Now, why? Why have I done this? Because if Jesus is not the same as you, then he cannot save you. If Jesus is not a human being just like you in every single way, sin being the only exception to that, then he cannot save you. You cannot be a Christian if Jesus is not a human being without sin. That's the point of the author of Hebrews. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, and then we're going to jump to Hebrews chapter 4. He's going out of his way to say that Jesus is just like us and how crucial that is to our salvation. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And now jump to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author of Hebrews is just saying that Jesus had to be just like us in every way except that he was without sin. If we are to be saved, Jesus has to be just like us. If we want a merciful high priest to stand in the presence of a holy God for us, then Jesus Christ must be a human being just like us who fully obeyed the law of God for us. If we want forgiveness of sins, then Jesus Christ must be a human being just like us, made up of body and spirit and who as a human being took the curse of the law upon himself for us on the cross. If we want access to God, then we need Jesus, the God-man. And so Jesus was made just like us, the writer of Hebrews says, except that he was not born with a sin nature like us, and he never sinned. Otherwise, Jesus was just like us. He had hair. He had nose hair. He had armpit hair. His armpits would stink. He burped. He laughed. He needed naps, which means that naps are biblical. And I'm planning on being biblical today about 2 o'clock. And Jesus vomited. He stubbed his toes, he cried, he suffered. When he woke up in the morning, his breath would stink just like yours does. 
When he woke up in the morning, he needed coffee just like you do. He was just like us. Everything, everything that we experience as human beings, he experienced. Whatever you're going through, whatever mess is in your family right now, whatever mess is in your life, the pain, the sorrow, the sadness, the agony, the loss, the betrayal, everything that we experience as human beings, Jesus Christ experienced, and therefore he is a merciful high priest that when we cry out to him, he says, my child, I have been there and done that. Isn't that who you want listening to you when you have pain and sadness and sorrow in your life and the holidays have a way of stirring this stuff up in our hearts? Isn't that the kind of person you want to listen to you? Someone who says, I have been there and done that. Got the t-shirt. Everything that we experience as human beings, he experienced, except he was without sin. That means then that Jesus probably stepped on a Lego piece with bare feet. And all of you parents have done that, haven't you? Nothing worse than walking down the hallway in the middle of the night and stepping on a Lego piece. Jesus probably stepped on a Lego piece. Except he didn't say what we usually say when we step on a Lego piece because he was without sin. Everything that we experience as human beings, he experienced. He was just like us. The only difference is that he was without sin. He was just like us. He was made up of the two parts that all human beings are made up of, body and spirit. That's the Christian confession. Human beings are made up of two parts, one part material, one part immaterial. Our body is the material part that we are made up of, the physical part. It's the flesh and the blood and the bone and the tissue. And our immaterial part is our spirit or our soul or our heart, whatever you want to call it. It's the immaterial part of us. But we are both. Human beings are made up of two parts, the material and the immaterial, body and spirit, or body and soul, if you like. And we must hold to this view that human beings are definitely made up of two parts, body and spirit. We must hold to this. Otherwise, we'll say things like this at a funeral. Because what typically happens when we attend funerals? It often goes something like this. Brother Bob is not with us today. He is not here. He has left his body and he is with Jesus. Now, I'm sorry, but Brother Bob is right there in that casket. I can see him. I can touch him. You're telling me that he's not there? He's there. That body in the casket or in the tomb or in the grave is Brother Bob. It's a part of Brother Bob. It's not all of Bob, but it is a part of who Bob is. It's a half of who Bob is. It's the material part of Bob that is in the casket. And Jesus believes that so much so that one day, Jesus believes that the body in the casket is Bob. He believes that so much so that one day, when the father decides, he is going to resurrect Bob, the Bob that's in the casket. One day, he will raise brother Bob's body up out of the grave just as Jesus was raised, and then he will reunite Bob's spirit with Bob's body. What happened to Bob, proverbial Bob, is that death has torn Bob apart. 
When a Christian dies, yes, absolutely hear me out. When a Christian dies, yes, a part of him or her is with Jesus. His or her spirit is with Jesus, but part of that person is still here in the ground or blown up or eaten by a shark in the ocean, whatever way that you die. That means then that Bob and you and me, Bob is not fully saved until he is resurrected. Now let me say that again. Brother Bob, you, me, your loved one that has gone on to be with the Lord is not fully saved until the resurrection. I don't mean that you aren't saved as a Christian. When someone repents and they trust in Jesus Christ, they are saved forever from the wrath of God. That happens at regeneration when we are declared righteous. Justification happens. We are saved in that moment. But the Bible also says that we are being saved, that it's called sanctification, that we're in this process of very slowly being conformed to the image of Jesus. And the Bible also says that we will be saved finally and fully and completely one day, and that's called glorification. But we are not finally and fully and completely saved until we are resurrected. Let me say that again. We are not finally and fully and completely saved until we are resurrected. Therefore, Our bodies are not an earth suit, as some Christians say. That's pagan. That's Gnostic. That's the kind of language that the Gnostics in the early church would view because they viewed the body as this bad thing that they wanted to get rid of. No, God made you with all of your hair and your fingernails and your toes and your teeth and your tongue. Your body is not an earth suit. It is you, You are the nose that you hate. You are the curly hair that you hate. You are the chin that you hate. You are the toes that you hate. See, Christians have lost their understanding that salvation is very physical. Salvation is very, very physical. When God began the process of salvation with you, he wasn't just interested in the spiritual. He wasn't just interested in your spirit or your soul. He wasn't just interested in the immaterial part of you. God wants your body too. Because what does Paul say in Romans 8 verses 22 through 24? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What did Paul say? The redemption of our what? Not just the redemption of our spirit, but our bodies. Not just the salvation of your spirit and soul, but the redemption of your body too. In this hope we were what? Paul says we were saved. Salvation is not complete until you are resurrected and standing on the new earth. That's what the second advent of Jesus is all about. It's not just about going to heaven when you die. It is about the coming together again of your spirit and body in resurrection. Salvation 
is about the redemption of your body. That's what Advent is all about. It's about Jesus' first coming, and it's also about what happens at his final coming. It's about the coming together again of our body and spirit. Or if we're alive when Jesus returns, Paul says that we will be transformed and glorified in an instant. But how do our bodies and spirits get separated? That happens at death. And that's why you've heard me say that the most perverted thing that can happen to you is death. Because in death, your spirit is ripped from your body. In death, this perverse and twisted thing happens whereby you are split apart into two different pieces that are supposed to be unified. You and I were not made to be split apart. We were made to be body and spirit united and knit together. And death comes along and destroys all of that. Death comes along and perverts and twists God's creation. And so in Genesis 2, 7, it says that Adam was made from the ground. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam came from the ground. Adam came out of the dust. So to be a human being means to be out of the dust or out of the ground. Therefore, the appropriate relationships between human beings and dirt or human beings in the ground, the appropriate relationship is that we come out of the ground. We come out of the dust so that we can be put over on the earth and have rule and dominion over the ground. That's God's design. Human beings come out of dust and they rule over it. Out of dust ruling over it. That's what Adam was supposed to be doing in the garden. He was supposed to come out of the ground and rule and have dominion over the earth, over the ground, over the dust. But he sinned and death entered the world. And now every single time a human being dies, they experience the most perverted and twisted thing that can ever happen to a human being. They have their spirit ripped and yanked out of their body. That's perverse. That's twisted grace. It's not supposed to be that way. Therefore, death sucks. And we should hate death because what happens in death, in death, you go back into the dirt, back into the ground, and you aren't living in proper relationship with the ground. Hear those condemning words after the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 19. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But we were made to rule over the earth. Adam was made to rule over the entire earth. We as human beings were made to rule over the entire earth. But because of Adam's sin, death comes along and puts us out of relationship with the ground. Death comes along and puts us back where we don't belong. Death puts us back into the ground, and that's why death is the most perverted thing 
that could ever happen to us. Why is death the most perverted and twisted thing that can happen to a human being? Because death puts you back into the ground out of relationship with the ground where you and I do not belong. Death takes you from a position of having dominion and ruling over the earth to a position of having the ground ruling over you. But we weren't made as human beings to be under the ground. We were made to come out of dust and to rule over it. And so now the million dollar question is, how do we get restored to that proper relationship with the earth, with the ground, with the dust? How do we get restored to that place where we are walking on the earth again, having dominion? The answer is resurrection. We get restored to that proper relationship of ruling over the earth by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the resurrection, at Jesus' final coming, his final advent, we will be brought out of the dust again and we will be restored to a proper relationship with the ground. We will rule and reign with Christ on the new earth. So understand this, Grace. Resurrection is just Genesis 2, 7 all over again. What God did with Adam and reaching down and picking him up and making him and forming him and breathing life into him. Resurrection is just Genesis 2, 7 all over again. Resurrection is us coming out of the dust and being made new just like Adam was. Resurrection is just Genesis 2, 7 all over again. So when we die as Christians, we are dead We are out of relationship with the earth. And so proverbial Bob who died, his body is still here, still in the casket, in this imaginary casket right here. He's still here. If you're listening online, there's no body in a casket this morning. That would be a great uh, illustration, I guess. But proverbial brother Bob who died, his body is still here. But his spirit is with Jesus in total bliss and in total joy. He is free from pain, free from suffering, free from agony, free from sorrow. But brother Bob is disenfranchised in this moment. Even though he's with Jesus, he's disenfranchised. He is not yet complete. Absolutely. Is he loving being with Jesus right now? Absolutely he is. But he's not ultimately content. He's waiting and yearning, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Brother Bob is waiting for the day when he will come out of the dust again, the way it was supposed to be before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. That's the Christian gospel. This is good news. Christians believe that heaven is physical Christians believe in the resurrection. Don't leave the resurrection out of your gospel message or it will not be good news. If you preach a gospel that says your body's discarded and God never does anything with it ever again, that's not good news because that's a part of who you are. You've lost half of yourself. When you share the gospel, don't leave the resurrection out or it will not be good news. For an unbeliever, when they die, their spirit is ripped from their body and their spirit is in torment while their body is in the ground. And on the final day, unbelievers will be resurrected. Their spirit and body will be reunited, but they will spend eternity in hell forever as a resurrected human being. But Christians will be resurrected, come out of the earth, 
to rule and reign with Jesus Christ on the new earth. So Christianity is not about your spirit leaving your body when you die and then it's over. Christianity is not just about dying and go to heaven. Christianity is about experiencing resurrection, living eternally on the new earth in a new glorified, very physical body. And the only way for that to come about is for the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, to come to the earth and to take on human flesh. Remember, if Jesus is not the same as you, then he cannot save you. The only way for you and I to experience salvation, salvation of spirit and body, the only way for us to experience resurrection is for Jesus to take on human flesh and to live the way that Adam was supposed to live in the Garden of Eden. For Jesus to fully obey the law of God on your behalf and on my behalf. And then for Jesus to pay the penalty for your sins on the cross in my sense, by bearing the curse of the law to bring us back to God. And then the only way for us to be saved is for Jesus to be put into the ground and then to come out of the grave. Jesus came to live the life that we could never live because we're sinners, and he came to die the death that we deserve because we are all sinners. And so Jesus experienced Death. This same separation of spirit and body that we will experience one day. Jesus experienced the most perverted thing that a human being can face. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, experienced the most perverted and twisted and sick thing that can ever happen to a human being. He had his soul, his spirit, ripped out of his body. Jesus experienced the perversion of death for us. He died and his body was in the grave for three days while his spirit was with the Father in heaven. Death separated Jesus' spirit from his body and death will separate our spirits from our bodies when we die. Death separates, that's what it does. That's what death does best, it separates. Death does perversion best. Death does twisted best. Death does sickening best. And that's why death is the most perverted thing that can ever happen to you. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus experienced the perversion of death for us because he was just like us. He had to be made just like us so that he could experience the perversion of death for us. He was just like us. He was made up of the two parts that every single human being is made up of, the body and the spirit, the material and the material. He was fully man. He was fully God. He was and is the God-man. And that's why to be Christian is to affirm this about Jesus. He is 100% God, 100% man, with those two natures, God and man, united in one person. When we talk about Jesus being the God-man, we must always say in the same breath and in the same sentence that he is 100% God, 100% man, 
with those two natures united together in one person. That is the historic, orthodox, Christological position. Jesus is fully God, fully man, with those two natures united together. They're distinct natures, but they're united together. They're not blended together. They're united together in one person. So we must always include the phrase, with those two natures united together in one person. And the early church voiced its creedal stance in the definition of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. We don't have time to go into it now. We will look at it briefly in next week's email devotions in The Vine. But what the Creed of Chalcedon stated was that to be Christian is to affirm this about Jesus. He is 100% God, 100% man, with those two natures united together in one person. He is fully God, fully man, with those two natures distinct, not blended together, but united together in one person. And so you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal about all this? Why, Benji, do you labor to show that Jesus was both human and divine in unity? Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, said in his Epistle 101, for that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. What does Gregory of Nazianzus mean when he says, for that which Jesus has not taken up, he has not saved? Gregory means that if Jesus did not become like us in every way, sin being the only exception, then he could not save us. Gregory of Nazianzus would tell you, if Jesus is not the same as you, then Jesus cannot save you. And so I labor to teach you this so that you understand that if Jesus was not fully human, then he could not save you through his life. He could not save you through his death. If he does not take on a human body, Jesus Christ cannot save you. If Jesus does not become a human being and do what Adam did not do and do what we cannot do, which is obey the law of God perfectly and never sin, if Jesus does not become a human being and do what Adam did not do, then we die in our sins. If Jesus did not come as a human being and fully obey the law, then we have no hope. If Jesus did not die in our place, taking the curse of the law upon himself for us, then we can't be saved. And so that's why I talk about it, because I want to be saved. Don't know about you, but I want to know that I can be saved because he was made just like me. If Jesus did not come as a human being and get a runny nose or a toothache, or burp, or eat certain foods that would upset his stomach, then we can't be saved. If Jesus did not come as a human being with fingers and toenails and ears and and a belly button, whether it was an innie or an outie, I don't know. You can debate that. The council's never talked about that. But he had a belly button. And he had kneecaps and a liver and lungs and ankles and armpits. And if he did not have these things, then he cannot save you from the coming wrath of God. He had to take on human flesh and be like us in every respect, sin being the only exception. If he does not have an immaterial human spirit or a soul, then he cannot save us. And if he does not have a human body, then he cannot save us. He must be made like us in every respect, yet without sin. So let's close by reading those passages in Hebrews again. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a merciful high priest who sits at the right hand of God the Father. Whatever you're going through, he knows. He's been there. Experiencing loss in your life, he has experienced loss. Loss of friends, betrayal, he knows what that is like. Through death that you're mourning, he knows what that is like to lose someone. Sadness, sorrow, this holiday season, as, as the holidays stir up all this sadness in our hearts, he knows you have a merciful high priest. Will you run to him today because he cares? He comes to you and he says, I know exactly how you're feeling. Exactly. Come, put your head on my shoulder. You have a merciful high priest who sits at the right hand of God. He has paid for your sins. He was tempted in every way that you are, yet without sin. You can run to him when you're tempted, and he says, been there, done that, but I didn't give in. You can run to him, and he will help you fight sin. You can confidently draw near to the throne of grace and find grace and mercy today. And the whole reason that you can do that is because Jesus was just like you. Sin being the only exception. Will you run to him today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great mercy. After the rebellion of Adam, you did not discard this mess and throw it away. You knew that death would come and do perverted, twisted, sickening things to us because of Adam's sin, and you did not leave us alone in that state to be split apart for eternity. Because of your great love, you sent your Son and he experienced everything that we do in order to save us. And so we're overwhelmed this morning. What good news the gospel is, Father, that you will resurrect us and unite our spirit and body again together. What good news that Jesus was made just like us, yet without sin. It is what we cling to today because all we know is sin. Would you cause us to run to our merciful high priest today, we ask in his name. Amen.